0: In Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, published in 1835, he writes, Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. As a first-generation immigrant to this country, my life has been divided into two distinct epochs. I explicitly remember what it feels like to go to bed hungry. We had nothing. I slept on the cold floor with six other people. I was barefoot most of the time and the majority of my clothes came from a donation center an hour away from the village I grew up in. My grandmother only finished fourth grade. My grandfather didn't go to school at all. The only way my mother received a primary education was through an NGO program that asked foreigners to sponsor a child in need. She told me that every month she would just visit the NGO center to take a picture to be sent to an American family in Texas. To this day, she remembers their names. The second epoch has been living in America. As I boarded a plane for the first time in my life, I remember asking my mom, where are we going? She answered, we are going somewhere where you will be free. We are going to America. This moment was life altering. This was the first time I was introduced to the concept of freedom and the American dream. I believe in the importance of our own personal narratives. Our stories shape how we view relationships with each other both as individuals and as Americans. My experiences growing up in poverty and seeing my mother struggle to feed my sister and I has forever impacted the relationships with the pillars of America's philosophical creeds, of freedom, of equality, and of justice. At the age of six, I was already interested in these governing doctrines. This is why in this podcast, I will explore the concept of a universal basic income and the role such policy plays in America's quest for a more just and equal society. So, what is universal basic income? According to Basic Income Earth Network, or BEAN, a basic income program is the periodic cash payment that is unconditionally delivered to individuals without means test or work requirement. BEAN sets out five characteristics of a basic income program one it's periodic it is paid at regular intervals not as one set grants two cash payment it's paid in an appropriate medium of exchange allowing those who receive it to decide what they spend it on three it's individual it is paid on an individual basis and not for instance to a household four it's universal it is paid to all without means test and five it's unconditional It is paid without a requirement to work or to demonstrate willingness to work. The modern discourse of basic income outlined by Bean has only been around for half a century. The philosophy behind basic income, however, can be traced back to the 1500s. The true father of the basic income philosophy is accredited to Johannes Ludovicus, a Renaissance era humanist. In 1526, under the title on the assistance to the poor, Lidiv- Lidivicus proposed that the municipality government be given the responsibility of securing a subsistence minimum to all its residents, not on the grounds of justice, but for the sake of a more effective exercise of morally required charity. The idea of morally required charity outlined by Lidivicus is essential to understanding the appeal of a UBI program. Throughout history, the philosophy behind UBI has been appealing regardless of political identification. From Adam Smith to Martin Luther King Jr., leaders throughout American history have agreed on the need of some form of basic income. In short, UBI centers is a philosophy that defines income as a basic human right. This is so different from social welfare programs like food stamps or Medicare. Food stamps and Medicare both require a threshold to be met before one gets access to assistance. A UBI program is more like our current discourse on universal healthcare. And like universal healthcare, a non-discriminatory, non-needs-based assistance program run by the federal government is a polarizing and often anxiety-inducing idea. So what are the odds that such program exists in the United States? Who is taking the lead on making the moral claim of income as a basic human right? And what are the best circumstances that such program can exist and thrive? Stockton, California is ground zero. Earlier this year, Stockton's Mayor Michael Tubbs and his administration rolled out the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or better known as SEED. The program is the first city-led basic income program in the nation, and it's funded entirely by private donations. During his keynote address at the Pacific Symposium, Mayor Tubbs said that one of the 125 recipients was a single mother with two children, ages four and nine. He said that the mother, who he did not name, wakes up at 4 a.m. every day, takes her children to daycare and school, and works a 14-hour workday. She then comes home, makes dinner, goes to bed and starts the next day all over again. She told Mayor Tubbs recently that the $500 monthly stipend would help her catch up on bills and allow her to purchase items for her children that she couldn't purchase otherwise. Countless stories and testimonies have been recorded by the program staff. Is it over here at the barbecue place? Okay. So I'm currently at Truseter Union at the heart of Stanford University's campus, interviewing a service worker named Rafa who commutes back and forth from the Central Valley to the Silicon Valley to work here on campus as well as a neighboring campus uh, named Menlo College. His son actually goes here. He is my year, um, and he is one of my close friends. And I really want to be able to do this interview with him to get a better understanding what gets him up every morning to commute here and do the work here instead of staying in the Central Valley, um, and what $500 could do for him if the seed program at Stockton continues. I meet Rafa at Trestitor Union. He looks visibly tired, but he has a smile on his face. He's surrounded by his friends. We walk together outside. He waves goodbye to them and tells them he'll be back. So, what does your day look like when you? come from Tracy, um, from Yeah, Tracy, when I'm
1: Tracy, yeah. Usually I, I get up around three in the morning. Mm-hmm. In the morning, usually I take a quick shower. It takes me like uh, 15 minutes. Yeah. So I always try to leave my house before 3.30. Before around 3.20, 3.25 is when I leave Tracy. Yeah. And right now, and uh, during some time of the year, they have some work in the road, some kind of delays. But yeah. uh, usually when there's no delays, I make it here to Stanford between an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes, in yeah. here. And I usually I start here around 4.45, yeah. 5 o'clock is my hours. Yeah. My hours actually are 5 to one thirty over here. Yeah. But my boss is very flexible because she knows I live far and sometimes I get here early. Yeah. She actually lives in Modesto too, so she knows all this So about she travels. Commute. She travels as well. Yeah, she travels. She knows about the commuters and all the problems that we find in the road sometimes. Yeah. But usually she takes the train and she has a little car. She, yeah.
0: She
1: she leaves her car in the train station. Yeah. And then she comes to work and takes her car back and then. Yeah. She, so usually when I get here, I. I clock in around 4.40, 4.45, and I stay here until 1, 1.10, uh-huh. and then I give me time to go to my other so job. To your other job. So my other job, usually I start between one thirty and 2, also yeah. got very flexible. Too. And when does that end? Uh, it ends around, it's supposed to end around 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock. But the days uh, I finish early, I try to leave uh, after the, the afternoon rush, around 7.30, 8 o'clock. Yeah when the days I gotta go to my house.
0: So you you start your day basically at 3 and you end it at 10.
1: Something like that. Some
0: some days, yeah.
1: Some days, yeah.
0: And if it gets too busy, then you have to you stay here with your friend at yeah. East Palo Alto and East Palo Alto yeah.
1: so I don't have to drive all the that way far. there. Because usually when I get there, it takes me another an hour, ten hour, fifteen. Yeah. Uh, so by the time I get there, it's just time to sleep, and then I have to get up at three in the morning again. it's only like a four or five hours. Yes. So that's better. I get too tired of driving, and I stay here. Because uh, I've been doing this since uh, 2003, was almost 15. Oh wow! Years. So you've
0: been going back and forth yeah. for 15 years. So
1: 15 years, yeah. I was uh, uh, my kids were little when we yeah. were over there. We, we would just talk to all these things about my kids growing up just with a mom. I yeah. never attend to the school events. I yeah. always working here. Yeah. But it's a good choice for me because in here it was no place to. Find affordable yeah, house. You got maxed
0: out here yeah. in the
1: Silicon Valley. Yeah. So I, I used to, when I first got married, me and my wife used to live in Redwood City. It was not that bad at that time, like 20, 20 some years ago. Mm-hmm. But then started to get very hard. Yeah. And that was the And the only place I can qualify to buy a house was in Stockton. Yeah. Because of all, the income, all the way out there. Yeah. All the way out there. I was planning to stay there and find a job over there. Buy so hard with the salaries over there, the money they give you is more competitive mm-hmm. than the one I can make over here. Mm-hmm. Because I have to start all over again over there and make less money. I can afford the payments of the house. Yeah. So after looking look a little bit there, I just decided to start the commute to come to Stanford. I've been here for Stanford all all my life. Yeah. I was a teenager when I started to work here. I was 19. On campus? Yeah, you started campus. working on campus at 19? Yeah. yeah, I started campus in 1979, 1980. Yeah. That's when I started to work around the campus here. Yeah, I was working for another company because this place used to run for independent company. being yeah. run by Stanford. Yeah, So I started to work uh, all my life around this area and I like the place, I like the environment. Mm-hmm. That's why when... My son was little, we used to bring him over here and try to motivate him so that he can come there. He did it. He did it. Yeah, he, he did. He stopped on the neighborhood, it was not so great.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but then we moved to Tracy, and I like Tracy very much. Yeah. It's a very nice, clean city. Yeah. Uh, right now it's getting too big. But by the time we were first moved, the schools were very, very good schools. The neighborhood was a very good. neighborhood, So I want a nice place so my kids can grow up and be safe. And, happy environment. And Even so, I don't have to be there all the time but yeah. they were with the mom.
0: <laughs> yeah, so do you know a lot of people that do that, that that uh, come from the Central Valley here to work?
1: Uh, I have different co-workers here. That that. They they usually do that. And I go. have a couple friends not very friends but now people a couple of friends who work in Arriaga they live in modesto and usually one of those guys he has like a band pool mm-hmm. so he bought a band and he brings more people from modesto to work here on yeah, campus uh, i don't know uh, uh, the lady the girl who was over there her name is michelle yes she lives in modesto too uh-huh. and she rides the, the, the band, band pool too. Yeah, and she comes here wow. every morning with the other uh, people they say they're around the campus yeah. here, so probably there's a lot of people yeah. who live in the Central Valley and work here and yeah. stuff. Yeah.
0: And so, what do you think about a program like Seed, which is run by um, the government of Stockton, that is piloting this program that gives five hundred dollars to anyone, basically, unconditionally? Do you think that? that would help you in some sort of way. What
1: is the condition uh, that you have to... No conditions, no conditions. conditions. It just give you some money so you can have...
0: $500, yeah, um, $500 every month. mm -hmm. There's no conditions. Mm -hmm. They don't care who you are, but that's the money. Do you, how, how do you think that would help
1: and you can use the money for, for anything for own. anything oh yeah 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 so I think uh, it helped made me because um, the gas is so expensive right now yeah. they breach you have to pay a toll and uh, the cars is worrying about just the last for one two three years and then the cars start to yeah. you have to buy another car because you're driving so much you pay yeah. 25 30,000 miles a year yeah. so just finish with the cars.
0: because to add that and, up uh, right you're yeah. You're driving all the way here, Mm -hmm. you're paying for gas, you're paying for maintenance, Mm -hmm. you're paying for the time that you spend in your car. And so Mm the $500 you think would help in decreasing that burden from your paycheck here. My
1: paycheck, yeah. Yeah, So because in here, you have to pay parking and all this. That the school doesn't doesn't <laughs> no, pay for
0: no no
1: uh, well, the only the program the school one time mentioned to me if I wanted to ride the train I don't know it's still the program is still oh, okay among, public transit yeah, public transit they pay with, uh, yeah they and so they but that's in.
0: what three three hours on yeah, the train but for
1: me uh, it didn't work because uh, the first train uh, arrives here around six thirty. And yeah, usually when and I... And you have to be here yeah, before then. I have to then. be here before that. Okay. So, so, and then at the time, in the afternoon, the last train leaves around 5, 6 o'clock, and I'm still working in my other mm-hmm. job at the time. So I didn't pay much attention about the, yeah. this program.
0: Because
1: and so, it not work for me.
0: So maybe 5, 10 years from now, do you still see yourself doing this commute every day?
1: Uh, actually, uh, I wanted to, to move closer, but every year something else they keep staying over there because they affordable places getting shorter and shorter not, yeah no place even you want to rent over here you want to rent a two-bedroom apartment you're going to pay twenty five hundred two thousand dollars so yeah. depends the area and over there in my mortgage i have a nice house for five bedrooms yeah. and i pay only like twenty five hundred mm-hmm and uh, that's the cost of an apartment apartment here but I am planning to do this maybe for another five years until reach 65 64 mm-hmm. maybe then I'm gonna try to uh, start working maybe. yeah and by the time i should wait for my kids, my daughter to graduate and then uh, I won't stop completely of working maybe I'm gonna just I gonna quit one of my jobs or mm-hmm. one job. Because all my life I've been working and it feels strange to start working just suddenly. I feel very Especially anxious. Especially here, right? anxious and nervous when I yeah. start working because my body used to move and all the time coming from here to there and always doing something. Yeah. So I don't want it to start completely. Yeah. But at that time, I was planning to sell my house over there if it still have it. And then uh, maybe have some money already for my wife for 1K retirement here. Mm-hmm. Maybe my social security owner will hold me. So maybe I can rent or buy if possible. Small yeah. studios, small apartments yeah. for me and my wife. Yeah. And then keep working just a part-time some hours even during, the, during mm-hmm. the week. And then stop the commute you know, mm-hmm. or drive a long distance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for now, uh, uh, in the short time, uh, not yet because my daughter is it's gonna start the junior year. This mm-hmm. year, so she still have four or five years more in the school. Okay. And I need uh, the money that Stanford gives me because it's uh, very helpful to me. Stanford pay for the tuition for my son, for yeah, my daughter, almost in yeah. So I is a big, big, big help. You yeah. I don't have to ask for too many loans for them. Yeah. So. Uh, and right now that's why I keep working so I can stop, I can pay to see the tuition for my daughter. Mm-hmm. And my son is going to finish this year, but he has another year and he find another way to pay for that. Okay for that. And it's very helpful and it's a it's very nice place to work in here. I'm very happy with my life working here. Mm-hmm. I never had my mind going and find another job. Very successful and very happy working around here. Yeah, yeah. gives me the opportunity to grow my family. Uh, still, I have to have to know another job because in California I have to have two jobs to survive.
0: Three. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. I think that was that was really helpful to thank get a much. larger picture. Thank you, right. Yeah, hopefully. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: Thank you. And uh, hopefully, don't work too hard. Paper. Yeah. No, no. Actually, right now, like I say, Melo uh, College, in semesters. Yeah. So we have only like a few summer students.
0: Okay, that's uh, good. Only
1: like few, uh, been only four or five hours. Okay. <laughs> but nice to meet nice you. Nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. See you. Graduation. See like you. graduation. Yeah. yeah. See Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: So I just got done with my interview with Rafa, and wow, that, that man is amazing. When he said that he's been doing this for 10 plus years, getting up at 3 a.m., driving to Stanford, working here for eight hours, and then going to his other job for eight hours, and then when he feels like he has enough energy, drive two more hours to go back home, you know, like... All I kept thinking was, I don't think I could do that every single day for even a week. And this guy has done it for 10 plus years. And a lot of it has to do with jobs and cost of living and not being able to provide for his family, as well as, you know, pay tuition for some for his kid to go to Stanford University. And I just feel this deep connection with him just because my parents also did that. I mean, they didn't wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and they definitely didn't work two jobs back to back. But I'm wondering what that does to, you know, yourself, your physical body and your emotional health, as well as, you know, your relationships with people. I could tell that when I was interviewing Rafa, he kept thinking, or he kept saying how he missed a lot of his children's childhood, but that's okay. And, you know, I think at this point, I have to confidently say that that's not okay. And, you know, that's, it's not his fault, but it, it's just sad to know that he has that regret that he lives with. In 2007, my parents moved our family to the Central Valley. Like Rafa's story, we couldn't afford living in the Silicon Valley anymore. My parents originally settled in San Jose. As the cost of housing skyrocketed in the early 2000s, my parents figured that the only way they were able to buy a home was if it was in the Central Valley. We settled in Lathrop, California, about four exits from Stockton. The house was a large 2,000 square foot newly built home. The financial crisis of 2008, however, decimated the Central Valley's booming housing market. My parents lost everything, all their savings, all their furniture, everything, and they filed for bankruptcy. By the end of the year, we were left homeless and searching for affordable housing back in San Jose. It's been 10 years or so since the last time I saw our old home. I wanted to see how Lathrop, Stockton, and other neighboring towns were doing if they were doing better than the last time I left them. So I just turned into the street um, where my parents used to have a home and it looks like it hasn't changed that much. The houses are still, you know, looking brand new. The lawns, however, a little bit mm, not as well kept as they used to be when the houses were first built. Um, My parents bought their house for around $570,000 in 2006 and basically moved our family outside of the Bay Area to the Central Valley because we got priced out. Um, And when 2008 happened and the bubble burst, the housing bubble burst, the price depreciated so much that the house was now worth $120,000. And my parents just couldn't live with that in terms of refinancing and living in a house that they bought for $500,000 and it now being 120000 hundred and twenty. I mean, these are the same stories that hundreds if not thousands of families went through. Um, during the two thousand eight financial crisis, both in Lathrop and in Stockton. I mean, Stockton, California, was a financial or foreclosure capital of the world, and you know, just decimated neighborhoods there, poor neighborhoods already, and just being back here is a reminder of that traumatic time and my parents and my life of of really ultimate change and economic destruction. Um, I'm walking towards our old house and usually a lot of people and their family is out and about and kind of chilling on their lawns and enjoying their Sunday off work. And it looks like that's not the case anymore, at least today. Um, There's cars passing, but that's about it. I'm going to try to knock on our, my old house, and see if the current residents are willing to talk. <sighs> well, it looks like no one is home. It is Sunday. A lot of people go to church. It's a predominantly Latinx community here, at least in Lathrop, so I'm not that too surprised that no one's home right now. My next stop is to talk to Mehran Cavall. He's CEPR's first postgraduate fellow at Stanford University. He graduated last year. He works at Mayor Tubb's office and works closely with him concerning UBI in other social projects that the mayor has in plan. Thank you so much for coming out and um, talking with me, especially, I know that the um, State of the City speech just happened, mm-hmm. and can you talk about that and that experience um, with kind of like your first initial kind of like gathering of, you know, the community and the mayor and, and being in that space, talking about, the work that you've been doing this whole time.
2: Yeah, um, so this is my first experience working uh, in Mayor Tav's office during the time of the state of the city. And I think it's been a pretty stressful endeavor in, in the past just because we do so much. Um, and then to try and boil that down into an hour-long speech in a way that is digestible for um, our constituents in Stockton, it's always a challenge. But honestly, this year it went off really well. It felt like a really kind of like culmination event. Um, the mayor killed it. And uh, honestly, it's a pretty unique time to be in Stockton. I um, don't know how much background you have on the city, but when bankrupt in 2012, and kind of seeing this resurgence right now, like a lot of people are starting to look at Stockton for solutions and not as ground zero for problems, but ground zero for innovative ways to deal with problems. Um, and then you know see a a city a community kind of rally around that was was beautiful to me like I don't have a a place that I call home necessarily it's not somewhere that I grew up and now I feel like that's my community so for me to be able to be in Stockton at the time this is happening um, be welcomed into that
0: community and then celebrate with everyone really um, was a nice feeling. (laughs) And I know that at least Stockton and and their endeavors there in terms of the program for constituents. It's very intersectional, right? So Mayor Tubbs has been very vocal on ensuring that there is some sort of like intersectional approach when it comes to policy, whether it, it entails seed and something else, uh, whether it's the, um, uh, the program containing uh, or uh, kind of addressing like the violence Um, within the streets of Stockton, or, you know, like, it's it's very intersectional in a sense that, like, it's not just, like, a one-time, one policy thing that you throw at. And I was wondering, what do you think the role of SEED is in that intersection, kind of ensuring that the whole community, in terms of different aspects of, you know, struggles that people face, is addressed adequately? So...
2: I think in a, in a city like Stockton, similar to a number of cities in our country, really around the world, um, the outcomes that certain people face are very, very different than the outcomes that other people face. Um, and this can be something as simple as like in Stockton, there is a zip code that is nine minutes away driving from another zip code, and the life expectancy is 10 years different. Um, I think that in the past, we've ignored these things. We've been yeah. like, that's just the way it is. It's set up this way. Uh, and it's just immediately it's evidently clear um, that no these are actually structural decisions that people have made in the past that have led to these outcomes for specific groups of people Um, and it's all encompassing right so getting at that intersectionality kind of point um, we don't live single issue lives Uh, it's it's hard to remove the outcomes of violence without Talking about education without talking about housing without talking about um, adequate mental health and trauma services all of these things are related and if you're really trying to trying to deal with an issue trying to lift people up you have to understand that and attack everything in that kind of with that kind of lens um, with respect to seed that that's kind of the whole idea right like you hear people talk about um, universal basic income as a means of dealing with this like, soon-come-automation soon um, situation. And really, that's, that's not the way that we're thinking about it. We're saying, no, the status quo is actually awful. Mm-hmm. You know, that nearly one in two people can't afford a $400 emergency. Mm-hmm. People are out here living paycheck to paycheck, working two or three jobs, don't have time to spend with their kids, and as rents go up, they might not have housing. Mm-hmm. All of these things are related, and, and we what we're trying to see, what we're demonstrating is that um, you know people have entrenched stereotypes about the working poor in this country and we just think that unfair. We think that dignity shouldn't be attached to the work or to some kind of profit you produce for someone else, but rather you're a human being and inherent to you being a human being, you have dignity. Um, and so we we'll see putting trust in people to make decisions that will help them in their lives. And what we've
0: seen in this short amount of time is that that's what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, I I think that I want to touch on something that you just said when it comes to this idea of the status quo being kind of like a horrendous kind of reality right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people, for people of color, the status quo is kind of this ongoing cycle of poverty, of, of violence, of economic violence and disparity, right? And I was wondering in terms of, you know, like, to put it plainly out there, a lot of the videos advocating for UBI, um, that, um, as well as the mayor as a a black man, you know, a black man, like, and you have, you know, leaders or people of color advocating for this. I was, I guess, like, one question I've always had is that, you know, is, if there is backlash, where is that backlash coming from, you know? Or this idea that because the status quo for people of color are, you know, is, is so horrendous that you have to tackle it in, in terms of an intersectional approach. You know, how do you, you know, what obstacles do you face in terms of people not understanding that that sort of system of violence is very much intrinsically holistic, right? That it's not just a one kind of issue kind of thing that people are facing. Um, and I was wondering if you, if you, if you or the or at least Mayor Tubbs or, You know like your office get that kind of like kind of backlash of you you know you're taking this to a point where we can only do so much and we could only we should tackle or focus on one thing Um, do, do you do you guys face that at all so i'll say two things about that i'd say in
2: stockton there is some backlash but it's because the mayor is a very popular political figure there but at the same time there's obviously going to be a group of detractors anytime you try and do anything that's just kind of a, the way things mm-hmm. work. Um, and there, I don't think it's so much... Um, I don't think it's the same type of kind of criticism that, that you're talking about. I think it's literally just they don't like the mayor, therefore his policies are not going to be supported mm-hmm. by, by a certain small sub subgroup of people in the city. I got you. Um, I think that right now, because of this automation risk, we're seeing a lot of people who would traditionally be in those kind of... Structures of power supporting this policy. Yeah. So there's a lot of alignment as far as um, people who are interested in what's happening in Stockton and people who would not traditionally be interested in it and want to see positive outcomes from it. Um, I think that what we're talking about, really, to, to boil it down, is is a legacy of white supremacy in this country, um, and that's not something that one universal basic income demonstration is going to address but what lessons can we learn from it? And I think that what I've heard Mayor Tubbs do and what I've been able to do is I've been in different circles talking to people with differing viewpoints is kind of break it down to, to a question of values. Mm. Like, ultimately, regardless of who you are, what your political background is, even if you're ignorant to the idea of white supremacy, you say, oh, I don't even, like, I don't get it. How does that affect my life? It doesn't. Like, you can just work hard and get to where you need to be. This is America. Um, kind of spreading that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you boil it down to like its core like okay well there's a lot of people who are working extremely hard 14 hours a day uh they don't have time for like free time they can't invest in themselves and go back to school and try and re-reskill themselves they, they don't have the opportunity um they're forced to live this life and-, and not necessarily through any fault of their own and i think yeah sure some people aren't going to understand that but at the end of the day what we're trying to make people think about is you know, is that right? Is that okay for there to be billionaires within an hour drive from those people? Um, I definitely fall on the side of no. And, and some people might disagree, but as I was saying before, like with Mayor Tubbs, it, it's when you, when you kind of phrase the question in terms of values, you know? Like, do you think that's fair? If that was your life, do you think that that is an acceptable outcome for you, for your children? do you think you need to struggle that much just to to skate by and not really have have a chance at this American dream, quote-unquote? Yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your
0: question. It does, it does. I I think (laughs) that part of it is that idea, right, that, like, for the longest time, we've been having this conversation about welfare, social welfare, and having this idea that, like, it all boils down to one economics or one some sort of policy solution, where I think that in terms of the, the answer you gave, like, there is this third kind of dynamic that plays heavily into it and that's idea of morality and values and what you know what justice and what uh dignity looks like for for working people all throughout stockton and also the 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 country and i think that one part of it too is something that you touched on this idea of billionaires living an hour away i really wanted to ask you about that this this idea that you have the silicon valley you know the, the richest area and geographic location in the world right now in proximity to what was in 2008 the foreclosure capital of, of the country and I was wondering what do you think the relationship or what should the relationship be between tech and a powerhouse like the Silicon Valley and at the same time the vast inequalities here as well mm-hmm. and uh, a place like Stockton, where you know, bankruptcy and foreclosure was its history in the past, and now it's building itself up to uh, a different sort of, you know, vision. I'm sa- I guess yeah. that's the word. What is what does that relationship look like in the next ten, fifteen years?
2: Ooh, um,
0: if, I mean next year, maybe. Yeah, yeah
2: I. <clears throat> You know it's interesting so me coming from overseas really not having an understanding of what Silicon Valley was just really knowing the name recognition of Stanford being like yeah that's me like I'm going (laughs) Um, I think that we don't even need to think about an hour away look at San Francisco walk around there see how you feel Um, walk around in downtown Palo Alto where they literally put dividers in the middle of benches so that homeless people can't have a comfortable place to sleep Mm. look at east palo alto across the 101 freeway and separated by a physical barrier that was put there by someone in charge Mm. these aren't like coincidences Mm -hmm. Um, these are absolutely decisions that are made as part of this broader structure that marginalized groups of people um and looking at a place like stockton and trying to extrapolate what it's going to be like in the future is a difficult challenge i don't know if you know about opportunity zones but it's a it's basically a tax incentive that was in the last tax bill put out in 2017 that is meant to spur investment into distressed areas, get capital into areas where the, um, I think 20% or more of the population lives in poverty. And so a lot of people are excited about this as a means for development, but it has to be human development and anti-displacement mm-hmm. because there's the, the chance that people just flood communities like Stockton with a bunch of money without regard for the people who live there and make up that actual city and end up driving rents up, moving in more tech companies, displacing more people and worsening the problem that people profess to care about. Um, And then if you think about California, you know, we're like, we're the site of the resistance, you know, (laughs) we are the (laughs) anti-Trump capital of America. And we have the biggest homeless crisis in the country. There's something that doesn't add up. So it, it's definitely, again, back to that values question. If we're professing to care about these things, then we need to illustrate that. And I think technology, ultimately, there's no escaping it, right? I studied science, technology, and society here at Stanford, and I think that just the massive influx of capital, the way that we are all so addicted to our phones and our technology, it, it's become embedded in our way of life, there's no escaping it. I don't think that I think that's a futile effort. I think what we need to do now is AI is being developed and we get closer and closer to a place of general AI that the people who are in the room, wherever that room is, uh, need to be people like you, people like me, people like mayor Tubbs, people who understand that while people may say there's unintended consequences, no, it's like those people weren't there when you were trying to create this technology and therefore are not represented by this technology and therefore are not served by this technology and therefore are marginalized by this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a matter of that, getting more people like us in those rooms. And I think that it's it's really gonna have to be an, an educational effort. And I, I don't want to disparage that community too much because at the end of the day in Stockton, they're a big supporter. Mayor Sepp has those relationships and um, it's important that, that people with capital start to care about these things, but it's a matter of us being on the same page and going forward. Mm. Uh, Many times, likes to use this tagline: "Nothing about us, without us, mm-hmm. is for us," um, and I think that applies very well here um, to technology. You know, um, so I'm I'm hoping that this boom that we're seeing, whatever it is, um, not only spills over into Stockton, but spills over into communities like Stockton throughout the country.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, like when you look at the focus on Stockton, right, I think we were talking about a couple of days ago, how, you know, NPR, you mentioned Stockton and the State of the City speech by Mayor Tubbs. I think inherently there is this focus on Stockton because Stockton is a, a perfect city that encompasses thousands of cities across this country. And at the same time, it also has this relationship with tech in a way that is also trying to be replicated, right? So you see Houston kind of booming up and, you know, outside of Houston, those little cities and things that were disparaged by 2008, also trying to figure out what the relationship is to a metropolitan city like Houston or, uh, let's say, you know, like the the development and, and or the trying... The development of of Detroit again these ideas of kind of how do we replicate what we see in the Silicon Valley and the surrounding cities of Silicon Valley in different parts of the country and I guess one question I've had for Mayor Tubbs and for you is do you think that what Stockton is doing could be replicated Um,
2: I'm gonna say yes Mm -hmm. I do think that as far as I think that the North Star tenants that we do everything with are, okay, status quo, untenable, we need to do something about it. Understanding that the issues that we see and face are not going to be solved, Say example, violence. We can't just hire more cops to deal with it. We have to really deal with the root causes. And I think that if people start approaching um, the issues that they face in their communities with that same holistic intersectional kind of lens or perspective, then... It is possible to replicate some of the outcomes that we're seeing in stockton but i will also say you know like i started interning in stockton the summer between my junior and senior year here and it was the mayor's first year in office seat hadn't rolled out yet we were looking at advanced peace, but it hadn't rolled out yet Um, and i think that what's happening in stockton is very special Mm. Um, there's a lot of things that just happen in the right way you call it fate some people believe in god some people don't that's their choice whatever (laughs) I I really just, I I have this very strong belief in my core that um, what's happening right now is meant to be happening. Um, Mayor Tubbs is an extremely dynamic leader. He was born at a specific time. All of these things that just happen to fall in place with SEED, the relationships we have coming to Stanford, all all of this stuff doesn't just happen. Um, So I, I don't know that the exact same situation is replicable, but I think that it, we have to like. It, I, I think if we don't, then then we will lose like the very essence of this country for a lot of people. If we don't replicate that, that understanding in the things that we're trying to do, in the solutions that we're trying to pursue. So, I think so.
0: Yeah, and and I guess like it touches on this idea too, right? That that has mentioned has been mentioned over and over again of of where we are at our given place, and at the same time the institutions that we've attended um, and what what has shaped us right and so like you know I'm having this conversation with you as a Stanford student as you as an alumni as a mayor as an alumni and I think what ties a lot of our stories together is this idea of of hardship and and you know of realizing the discrepancies and realities of, of our life versus other people that walk around this campus every single day and at the same time when you leave this place, you return back to a life that was yours for the longest time, but is now totally changed because of the privileges and the experiences that you have that comes with a university like Stanford. And I think one question I've always had, you know, like graduating from this place and returning back to a gang-ridden neighborhood where everyone has bars on their windows and, you know, like my my own cousin got stabbed in the head and you know luckily survived but that's something that I I deal with and carry with you know every time I go home or go back to the city where I grew up in and I think that you know like hearing Tubbs speak he does draw on this idea of Stanford being a point in his life where he realized that what his reality was before coming here should not is, is not the reality of a lot of people that come to a privileged place like this campus or to this university. And the question that I'm really getting at is, what do you think the role is of a university like Stanford or other universities throughout this country of maybe teaching or or having the capacity to you know, turn out students like you or Mayor Tubbs or me of wanting to do something about these issues and and at the same time do you think that you could you could totally be like no this didn't affect me at all right like I did I got nothing from this place like I thought about these things before I came here and you know like I wanted to do something about it after right Right. and so I guess that question is that that's something that I have anxiety with right Mm -hmm. that like how do I tackle this issue that has affected my life before i came here with the privileges that i've had and and do you think that those privileges are 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 uh are important i guess uh for you or the or the role that mayor Tubbs has um um okay i'll
2: put it like this <laughs> so there's there's two things that i'm kind of thinking yeah one um Okay, on the Stanford side and then on the personal side. On the Stanford side, Stanford is, is funding me for a year-long fellowship in Stockton. Mm-hmm. Something I otherwise would not have been able to do. So in that way, I'm grateful to Stanford because I feel like they've allowed me to pursue my passion. They've allowed me to um, do work that I'm very proud of um, and continue to be proud of and, and I'm grateful for it. Um, at the same time, providing one student a fellowship as a 30 billion dollar institution um, is not the scale at which I would like to see an institution like this operating as far as creating more equitable outcomes for people like you and I are mayor Um On the personal side, if I think about this sometimes, it, upon graduating from Stanford, you're automatically kind of thrust into this weird elite circle of people, right? Like, throughout human history, maybe two hundred thousand people have ever graduated from this school. That's a small group of people. If you were like, what, four percent of your class probably got in? Of that, you know, like, it, it's really when you start boiling it down into percentages of people who exist on this earth. Not even America, the earth. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy what type of privilege we have gotten access to. Has been thrust upon us um and for me what i think about is the opportunity i have because of that so like i think about my parents my parents both immigrated to this country Um, my dad from uganda my mom from zanzibar my dad was a refugee in italy for a year got sponsored by a lutheran family in wisconsin found his way to california met my mom my mom came for education when she was 16. they both went to cal state after they had my sister like It's a very different life. They've put me in a position um, to be 22, having graduated from Stanford. Um, And I think about that, and it carries a lot of gravity and weight with me as far as what I want to do with my life. Um, And I think that the way that I think about it, it, I wouldn't say that it stresses me, I'd say that it motivates me. Because I recognize wholeheartedly that It's kind of arbitrary. There's no reason that I was born in this circumstance. There's no reason that I'm the one who got into Stanford and it wasn't my cousin or it wasn't whoever from wherever. But this is is my life. This is what I have. Um, And because of that, I do feel a more imperative, a responsibility to help others gain this access, to um, speak as freely and openly as I want to, knowing that, um, not everyone has the opportunity to share these truths with other people, um, and I think that's that's what's kind of been easing my mind a little bit and making me feel less anxious. It just understanding that that's what it is, and saying, okay, now now it's th- the challenge is what do I do with it? How do I leverage this newfound privilege, this newfound network, um, what is available to me, to give it back to more people and that's that's kind of the lens through which i approach it so, yeah.
0: <clears throat> it's a lot to think about it's a yeah. lot i know yeah, I'm yeah. Sorry. i
2: just I, it, it is a lot that's that's the thing man it's a lot you know like we don't realize this i came in i was 17 when i came to stanford i was 17 my parents like i've gone to international schools my whole life um it's a very very particular understanding of the world and like i feel like when you're in high school you don't at least me, I don't think I was reflective enough. I don't think I, I don't even think I had the language or understanding to really think about what it meant for me to be going to Stanford. But as times passed and I've been able to really like get into it with my parents, talk to them about their lives, understand the sacrifices that they have made, and real sacrifices, not stuff that I will have to do in my life because they did. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm moved. I'm grateful. I'm touched. I'm like, okay, now what am I prepared to do today? to do the same thing not only for my kids but for your kids mm-hmm. for kids of people who won't even get to Stanford um, that, that's what what motivates me
0: and I think that you know like hearing you talk about values and you know your personal story and just the authenticity in your voice when you tell it I think that like you know like hearing from the Tubbs in his interviews as well like I think that's something that runs authentically throughout your office and Thank I hope know. that it does right that like that you know Coming into this interview, I had these like preset questions about seed and e- economics and policy and, you know, like the viability of a program like seed on the national level and, you know, what that what that looks like and what it means. But, you know, I think that just having that conversation about your background, right, and and the background of Mayor Tubbs and how it influences our world view and how we view policy and how we view how we can better our communities is so important into advocating a program like SEED Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason why I got into this UBI you know project and doing a podcast style like this is because I value those stories Um, for me at least like my you know my story is really important I tell it over and over and over again my grandparents didn't go to college My grandma only went to fourth grade, and my grandpa didn't go to high school at all, only middle school, right, in the Philippines. And um, my mom was one of those kids where uh, you got sent a picture of every single month for donating your $30, right? Like, that was the only way she was able to get through high school. and. Like, at least for me, like, you know, I came here when I was seven from the Philippines, and, you know, this was also a big culture shock, let alone, you know, like, coming from a developing country to a, a gang-ridden city like San Jose and the yeah. neighborhood that I grew up in, and then all of a sudden transferring that out again Back into to a place like up. Stanford, and you know i think that inherently what what ties my story all together at least in doing the work that i'm doing right now in terms of wanting to explore seed and and ubi and and these very large philosophical economical issues that our country faces is this idea that i understand at to some extent i will never understand the hunger that my grandparents had or the or you know the hunger that my parents went through. But I understand the importance of their story and the viability of, of their lives and, and the dignity that they had regardless of what little they had yeah. and how that impacts how one advocates for something like seed mm-hmm. or one advocates for something like universal basic income on yep. a national level. Yeah. And I'm just really grateful to have a conversation about our stories and how we view our role in a place of privilege, but at the same time not forgetting where we came from and how we can use that to uplift other folks who might not have the same capacity when it comes to time and, and advocating for things or the same time privileges that we've had that comes from an institution like Stanford. So... Yeah, just like thank you. Oh, well, thank said, you so man. much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for
2: having me, man. I, thank I, you. I'm I, excited to see the outcome of your project. I'm excited to see what you do after Stanford, and I hope that we can stay in touch as well. Yeah. Is, if you have more questions, feel free to ask some time. I don't know what time is, but. What is it?
0: What no, what I think it? I'm good. You're good. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Are you just yeah, chilling for the rest of the day? Um, yeah, basically, I. W- Talking to Mehran really helped me understand why policymakers do what they do in terms of what they believe is right for their constituents. I think the only way for me to understand the role of UBI or SEED in the context of Stockton is to really get to know the people behind it, get to know the motives of, you know, Mayor Tubbs and his administration and the ways in which they try to advocate for UBI and SEED. And I think that talking to Mehran, it's really opened my eyes in humanizing kind of the process of advocacy. I think a lot of times we see politicians and we see policymakers as as basically puppets that have motives and use you know shady ways to achieve those motives. But I think talking to Mehran, it really changed my view on that. I really now see you know, the process of advocacy and policy making as a way of social justice and as a way of organizing from inside. And I think in terms of Stockton and Mayor Tubbs's administration, they're really doing that. They're working from within the system to fix and mitigate and help support the people who are the most oppressed and the most vulnerable in their community. Now, at this point of the podcast, I was originally set to meet with Suki Samra, the executive director of Seed. Unfortunately, due to the quick turnaround, I was unable to schedule that meeting. I have five questions for her, and I thought it'd be best that I just read them out loud right now. One, how does Seed accurately track its economic impact if the program is universal and not needs-based? Basically, Someone who's making 11000 is going to get a, the same amount as someone who's making 45000 Are we working towards equity or equality? I wanted to know also what her hopes was for SEED in a national UBI program. What's her biggest fear in the next coming months, especially as we know that the funding is running out? Also, conditional cash transfers are used to encourage the behavior of utilizing public services, such as education and health services, which, in terms of economics, lead to a reduction of poverty in the long run. What's the difference between a conditional cash transfer and a UBI program? How does one create incentive if we just give money away? This is something that has been brought up time and time again by critics of a UBI program. Should SEED or a national UBI program be separate from from already existing welfare institutions? SEED is currently funded by private donors. If the data collected concludes that the program is successful, will their program still be run via philanthropy, or should city governments take on this responsibility? And with such responsibility, are we taxing people? Lastly, UBI is a popular idea in the Silicon Valley. From Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg, tech has overwhelmingly supported a UBI system. Their view is that this program needs to exist due to the inevitability of automation and AI. Is this a credible fear that she has? These questions, I believe, paint a holistic picture, both in policy and both in the social circumstances of how a UBI program can be successful in the United States. Reflecting, I did not think I was going to get emotional during this podcast. I didn't think my story would be so intertwined with Rafa's or Mehran's or even Mayor Tubbs. I was very emotional after talking with Rafa. I empathized with him and I finally understood how drastic someone's life could be with a universal basic income program. I kept replaying the moment Rafa talked about his children and the time he was unable to spend with them. I noticed that he was ashamed of admitting that fact as if he was waiting for me to judge him or label him as a bad father. But I understood where he was coming from. He did what he had to do to provide for his family. I believe it is unjust that a child loses time from their parents due to the economics of labor. I kept thinking about how $500 could help him and his family. I mean, that's gas money right there, or dinners for a month, or other ways he could use that money. There's no way to talk about UBI without human stories like Rafa's sure like we can talk politics and policy but it's in these stories that matter the most we always have to ask ourselves how are we bettering our communities and how are we helping the most vulnerable in our communities as a first generation student of color i didn't see myself represented in the frames of policymakers plastered over sacramento's capitol building meeting mayron has really opened the possibility of me working in policy to better help communities I've always been a community organizer working from the outside in. Talking to Mehran, I've realized just how important working from the inside out is in the larger scheme of things. I don't believe you necessarily have to choose one or the other, but I do believe that they are both equally important if we want to make a holistic approach to large issues like poverty. What does change look like? How do we make sure that we center the stories of our communities when we create policy? Mehran really got me thinking about effective change and effective leadership. Going into this podcast, I didn't think Stanford University would be such an integral character. In more ways than one, Stanford is intrinsically tied everyone together. This goes to question, what is the role of Stanford University and other universities in creating a more equitable society? As a senior graduating in less than a week, I'm reminded of how big of an impact Stanford has had on my life. I'm a first-generation immigrant of color, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Stanford will forever change the way people perceive me. This is very daunting to think of, but I think Mehran really worded it nicely. He said, in the history of humanity, you're part of an elite group of less than 200,000 people who receive a degree from one of the most prestigious colleges of the world. It means nothing if you don't do good with it. This has really stuck with me, and I began to really question my role in society and the impact I want to bring in furthering human rights. Lastly, if there is anything to get out of this podcast, it is the importance of values. From talking to Rafa and Mehran, to reflecting on my immigrant narrative and going back to the house my parents lost in 2008, talking about UBI was merely a way of talking about what our values are as a society. I've come to the conclusion There is simply no way to talk about universal basic income without talking about morality. This ties into human rights foundationalism as well as the core, core principles the United States was founded upon, liberty and justice for all. What does liberty look like? What does justice look like? What does a just society look like? These questions still linger in my mind.